Hi, this is Natalie Lander, voice of Kinsey, Tara Brandford, Stargirl, and many others. You are listening to a W2Mnet podcast. You can visit w2mnet.com for other podcasts about entertainment, video games, sports, and wrestling. are listening to video games to the max hello and welcome to a special episode that's actually a crossover episode of a video games to the max with both uh myself sean garmer and of course always here with me mr mark morrison howdy and uh sort of representing the the radless and broadcasting side and of course volunteer broadcasting is what uh, helps make W2 Network an actual network. They make wonderful uh, shows reviewing movies, TV shows, old stuff, boxing, um, old movies, and then they even put these old movies on trial, which is usually the show that uh, this fine person that's here with us right now, uh, Mr. Sean Comer, is usually on with uh, Mark Radlitz. And uh, I'd like to just say thank you, Sean, for being on with us here. Hey, my pleasure. If there's one thing the internet loves, it's crossovers. Uh, People named Sean and Mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a different Mark and now two Sean's on this show. So, um, yeah, uh, thankfully one of us is hosting. So it's not like the, the one time you and I did a uh, glow and I'm sure Mark was wondering how the heck do I, <laughs> what? It's just like I have to use their last names, I guess. Uh, so, but let, let so what we're here to do is talk about the um, console wars documentary that was released on CBS All Access about a week ago, almost, and on on September twenty third. Of course, there was a book that is based on this uh, documentary. I think this was supposed to be a movie, and then they just decided that it worked better as a documentary. Well, it was supposed yeah. to be a movie, and then like a fictional TV show, which I think they're still working on, and then yeah. also then documentary as well now. Yeah, so this sort of like takes the gist of what happened and tries to sh- a huge book, which I think is like uh, I have the hardback copy, which I don't even know if it has a paperback copy or not. I think it doesn't actually. Um, by Blake J. Harris, I think it's around three hundred something pages. Uh, smash into a one hour and 30 minute documentary. Um, so what do you guys like, I guess, as in before we get started talking about the documentary, unfortunately for some of you that have been, if you're hearing this, this is your first time hearing this, uh, whether it's through the, the TV party side or, or through, uh, video games to the max. First of all, thank you for, for listening. Uh, but if you've been with us a while, we've kind of talked about this before. So sorry for kind of Mark and I are kind of going over. Uh, content we've already talked about, but because Sean has not been on with us before, uh, what are your sort of like gaming origins? Where did where did you start? And as this is a Nintendo versus Sega thing, where are you? Where do you land on on that? I guess. Uh, you know what? Growing up, I owned at two very at two different points, um, both an NES and a Sega Genesis. Uh, I start off, of course, with the Nintendo. And then after a few years, my parents offered me offered to buy me a Sega. This was back in the early to mid-90s. 
And then I think it was, ah, shit, about when was it? About right around the time we moved to uh, South Dakota in the late 90s, like 1999, I just kind of faded away from video gaming for a while. Um, I hadn't bought a next generation or current generation as they were console in a bit. Um, and so I actually missed out on a lot of the great years of gaming that a lot of my contemporaries got to take part in. Uh, the nascent years of the PlayStation, the dying years of the Sega Saturn and the Dreamcast. Um, and then I kind of picked it back up again in 2000, yeah, 2004, when I bought a used PlayStation 2 and like a shit ton of games for about 99 bucks, 100 bucks, or, or 200 bucks or so from a coworker at Northwest Missouri State University. And that was kind of when I started to get my toes really back into it. I also bought a GameCube around the same time. Uh, the two games that really got me back into gaming in full swing, I would say were, well, first it was the very first Kingdom Hearts game. And then not too long after that, it was the first God of War. And everything just kind of snowballed from there. Um, and I've kind of been a, I've kind of been a PlayStation gamer ever since I've, I own a PlayStation three. We own a PlayStation four. Um, my wife to be and I plan on getting a PlayStation five, uh, as far as where I kind of come down on the side of the Nintendo or Sega, uh, Sega was definitely cooler at the time. They took gaming graphically to places that it that it hadn't been before and where Nintendo hadn't yet pushed their games. But as far as who had the better games overall and who had the more extensive variety of what was available, it was and who had the you know consistently had the better games. Uh, yeah, yeah, I gotta say it was hands down Nintendo. Well, Mark, uh, I mean, I got into games. I, I got, in, got into games from like the handheld point of view. I'm not having like a really weird. Uh, you thought like the Nintendo, like the NES, was going to start a TV or something? <laughs> uh, God knows why. So if you got, if you bought like a Game Boy, I think maybe a Game Gear at a certain point. That thing just ate batteries like like too bad. Uh, so I didn't get like I missed the NES pretty much completely. I uh, like. Went to a friend's house occasionally and played it, but that was about it. I moved with my dad. He got me like a SNES, like pretty much that week, and then it was game on quite literally after that. <laughs> I got a SNES, a Sega Genesis. I even got the Sega CD and 32X at that point. I had a Virtual Boy, which is doing well nowadays. I had two of those <laughs> things at one point. Wow. I could think the first one broke because uh, of those stupid mirrors. And then yeah. Like PlayStation all the way up. I got, I don't haven't owned every system in the world, but uh, I own quite a few. Quite a few. And when it comes to PS2 and Xboxes, I have multiple of those. God knows why. Uh, as far as like the like, I recognize that the well at the time, like I kind of saw any uh, Nintendo and Sega as kind of you know neck and neck, really. Like I thought like you know Sonic was faster, but Mario had much more 
of an elaborate game system going on, or like a level system and world. But I like both. Like, some Genesis had faster games, typically. Uh, but, like, I always think about, I think, I remember an old Funko Land clerk said, I overheard him say one time, I think he was talking to some parent, he was like, you know, Genesis is good for sports games, and the, the SNES is good for everything else. <laughs> you know, I I think that's funny, because that's, I think that's kind of a condition, kind of a dichotomy, that for a long time persisted into even the earlier years of the PlayStation Xbox feud. And that's that the PlayStation had the more dependable hardware, and they had the better library of exclusives, but I think the Xbox was kind of looked at as the definitive console if you were a competitive gamer, and particularly if you wanted to play online. Like, for like for the longest time, PlayStation's online experience absolutely couldn't touch Xbox Live. Well, it wasn't just that. It was also the games looked better on both the original Xbox and the 360. I'll give you that. Compared to the um, PS2 and PS3, especially the PS3, a lot of the games would come out on PS3 and they'd have to be patched or they wouldn't work at all. Well, that's just Bethesda being Bethesda bad. No, certain games had like poor poor, poor work or like Bayonetta 1 was messed up on PS3 or one of the Ninja Gaidens was also screwed up. I mean, but yeah, I mean, that's to be expected, I guess, considering that architecture. <laughs> yeah, for me, I didn't, I knew nothing of there being console wars, uh, at all. Me and my sheltered, um, just having a Super Nintendo and not having a bunch of games for it. I was very much a sports, uh, I played Mario, Kirby, sports games, and like, I really, wasn't that deep of a gamer when I was a kid. I liked the things that I like sports, so I like sports games, and that's kind of how that worked until uh, Pokemon came in my life, and when I had my Game Boy Pocket, and eventually the Game Boy Color, and that changed everything. I all of a sudden started liking uh, different games, uh, especially RPGs, uh, and that kind of uh, molded my my what I like in games, and then of course. Having an Xbox in those uh, elementary school years where you're having slumber parties and having the system link and all that stuff. So I wound up liking, you know, Halo and shooters and all that. But when it comes down to that era of gaming, my brother had a, who's about nine years older than me, he had a Nintendo. I have, there are pictures of me watching him, sitting next to him, playing Mario on the Nintendo. I don't really ever remember mm-hmm. playing it. Because I was so young then, I think I was like five or six. All I have memories of is Super Nintendo with like Mario All Stars, Mario World, Kirby, sports games, and maybe a few other things, you know. Um, so that's what I I remember. I didn't know I knew there was a Genesis. I had friends that had Genesises, and uh, they I Genesis go I pl- <laughs> Ge- yeah. How would that work? Right? <laughs> Plural. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, like I'd go over to a friend's house named Travis and he had games and I'd go over there and play. Um, I had no idea that there was a Saturn or a 32X or anything like that. Uh, and then my dad got me a Dreamcast one day and that's the only Sega thing, uh, I ever owned. And I loved that a lot. I mean, it, they had some good games for it. Uh, unfortunately I was still, you know, I didn't work. I didn't have an idea of that system died and they were just no longer making games for it. And then of course, 
you know, PS2 comes out and Sega goes off and, and isn't Sega anymore. But yeah, that's, that's kind of my, uh, gaming, uh, history. And I've had most of the consoles, uh, since then, one or another. Um, I had times like you, uh, Mr. Comer, where because of things going on in my life, I couldn't play games at all. But for the most part, it's been a, a thing that I've stuck with. And, you know, since you're, you're the one that, um, said that you, you know, had a Nintendo growing up, what, what was that like for you? Do you have like memories of, did, uh, your parents just come and give it to you one day? Did you actually go to the store with them? What were the memories of your Nintendo? No, um, I mean, we were, we were a middle class family. But not, you know, we we did fine. We we wanted for absolutely nothing, but we were one where dad, for a lot of years, was the sole breadwinner in the house, and we didn't we didn't take a whole lot of super extravagant family vacations or anything. Uh, dad was and oh, fuck it, he is very much a luddite, uh, despite the fact that although he'd swear in a slack on a stack of Bibles, I'm lying. Uh, when we did get the NES, uh, I think he spent almost as much time playing Tetris and Duck Hunt as I did playing Mario Party, Castlevania, Punch-Out, Mario Brothers. Uh, it was about a year or two of my asking before we finally got one for Christmas. Prior to that, you know, uh, this was back when brick-and-mortar video stores still ruled the earth. And... Yeah, for like birthday or special occasion sleepovers or whatever, my parents would kind of throw us a bone and rent a Nintendo, rent a Nintendo for a weekend at a couple of games. Uh, and then one year for Christmas, like that, my first half dozen or so games, uh, was kind of, was kind of our big Christmas present. And so, you know, that was a, that was a lot of fun times with, the neighborhood kids coming over, sometimes bringing their own games, sometimes playing whatever I had. Uh, I, you know, those, those classic day, those classic days of couch gaming. Um, dad and I sometimes playing, uh, Pac-Man or Duck Hunt together, Tetris down in the basement. Um, that dad eventually started to sometimes just go down and play Tetris, whether I was playing or not. Um, I could be off working on homework or something and he would go down there and monopolize the TV for a, for a little while. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and again, he, I remember a few years ago, uh, it was this memory was brought up to him and his second wife. And, you know, she kind of joked, joked, what? You were a gamer? And he like he reacted to it like it was an in, like it was an insult, like like we had like we had said the man like we'd said the man wasn't arch, wasn't arch Nazi or a KKK member. Um, I wasn't a gamer. <laughs> back yeah, back when that really wasn't a a thing, you know, you you just played games, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there really, there really wasn't a whole lot of gamer culture, largely, largely because this was, I mean, this was pre-internet. Yeah. Uh, the, the closest thing you had to gamer culture was shit like Nintendo Power and Funko Land and just whoever you talked to and you talked to in the neighborhood, including that one kid whose uncle worked at Nintendo. Uh, that, 
which is God, it's, it's such humble beginnings compared to what we've got today. Yeah, certainly. Uh, definitely. Mm. Like, that's one of the things you're looking back at with like, man, it really was different to today. I mean, some of the stuff is very similar to what's going on today. And especially it's, um, very appropriate that we're getting this documentary when there is a whole new console war about to, well, a continuing of a console war that is about to start again and happening right now with the PlayStation 5 and, um, Xbox Series X coming out, and we'll talk about that at the end. Uh, what we think about the the new generation is about to be upon us, but yeah, I mean, Mark. So you said you were, uh, you know, your your dad got you the the Super Nintendo and Sega and all that. Like, what are your, I guess, memories of that? Favorite games, that kind of thing. Like for the SNES, I, I didn't have a ton of games. I had Mario World, which I think I got all like all ninety six levels or like exits in. Uh, I had Mario RPG, like that, was, like that, and a game called Vi for the Sega CD, or like my first RPGs. Uh, and I remember having Super Star Wars, and that sucked ass because it was way too hard. Uh, <laughs> that game was a beast. Yeah, I remember like go- more going into stores like Target and Kmart and Meyer and well and stuff like that, and like playing like kiosks. Like Kmart used to have a really cool kiosk where it had like an NES, Game Boy, and Super Nintendo like, next to each other, all in, like, the same unit, essentially. And they had, like, TVs in the, not on the ceiling, but, like, in the wall, and you could just play there. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I mean, I had a SNES and, and then a Genesis, like, a little later on, and then I kept bolting more and more shit onto that thing. <laughs> and get, getting less and less good experiences along the way. <laughs> well, let, let, since we're on the, the Sega chart, that's where this documentary kind of starts, is giving you the origins of because this is really it's not so much an origin story of sega and nintendo it is an origin story of sega of america and nintendo america going at it over here because in japan it was this was at a time this is like a time where not like today where things are a bit more closer right like you still have those things that come out in japan first and all that stuff but Back then, it really was, there are so many things that come out in Japan that it seems like that's a whole other world that, that's existing over there that we don't even get half the stuff. Or half the, or it comes years later and it's called something else or, you know, whatever. So like. Yeah, which, which one of the, which one of the mother games is it that Nintendo fans are still screaming for? Like three. Mother, three, I mother think. three. Three. That's it. Yeah. Or the Final Fantasies that we got. Was it a one, oh, two, God, and the final three, number. and they were actually <laughs> one, four, and six, or whatever, and that wasn't fixed until way later. So, uh, you know, but yeah, like just getting to to learn how Sega starts with people staying at comfort inns, and you know, they they hire Tom Kalinske from Mattel, and he starts things off, and and then they have to deal with you know, Sega Japan as well to kind of get things rolling. Like, is there any of that origin stuff that you guys like found interesting or every bit of everything that you just mentioned was so fascinating to me. Yeah. Like Kalinsky is a good figure for that because he's still pretty dynamic and with it. Like I thought some of the Nintendo guys were a little more sleepy, but he like Kalinsky still has most of it together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I mean, I guess that's why he worked at all those companies, right? And did did great things. He certainly was uh, one of those talents. I definitely agree. Some of those other guys felt like 
Um, they were just, I, I mean, it's, it's actually quite like as somebody that read the book, right. And got to know all these names. Like it's still kind of cool that they were able to get pretty much everybody on an interview and they're all still around to talk to and mm-hmm. tell their story mm-hmm. and everything. So that was good on their part. They got pretty much everybody that was. Well, they didn't important. get, like, Miyamoto, which I thought was interesting. Early well, on. but I, I don't think Miyamoto... They definitely yeah. tried not to get hardly... Any, like, the any of the actual, like, Japan people that stayed in Japan... Yeah. They didn't focus on them at all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... It, I yeah. don't know that Miyamoto... Miyamoto doesn't really do, you know, I mean, interviews I mean, yeah, like that. Of, so I, At least yeah. I had, like, a few videos of him. I was kind of... Right yeah. about that, honestly. Well, I mean, you can't really tell the story was, Nintendo without yeah. talking about him. <laughs> it was it, it was bound to it was bound to come up eventually. I was a little surprised that you know we we didn't get any clever sound bites or anything from uh, Reggie Fizami. Well, he yeah. came way later. That's, yeah, because he came later. That's yeah. oh, did he? I wasn't sure. Yeah, I could, it was a GameCube. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Right, I, yeah. I, See, I shows what I know. I, I could have sworn during one of the clips of like a Nintendo Office powwow that as I looked at the table, I was like, "Is that Reggie that I see there?" No, but, yeah, he was at least two thousand. He was like two thousand. I mean, he might have been around, okay. right, but bad. he wasn't like a figurehead. True. No, no, like, he and, was like yeah. he was like running Pizza Hut in Canada you know, before, yeah. before Nintendo. So right. I mean, first of all, I. I can't put my finger on what it is about it, but there's just something that I find so damn kind of charming and fascinating about the fact that Shinobu uh, is still living in the same comfort inn. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, all, <laughs> as as he was during the height of the Sega. That's all Sega can afford these days. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, yeah. Is he still I, okay. So, like, is he still working for Sega? Or yeah, is he, he is. Okay. Yeah. I, I looked at some of the people that like because I was curious, but, like. Where, where these people are, and yeah, he's still at Sega apparently. I mean, that's it, amazing. It, it, it kind of reminds me of it when you think about the fact that uh, he was a part of such a successful era for the company. It, it kind of reminds me of God. I'm drawing a blank on him. That this one major league pitcher that I heard about years ago, who was signed to your typical beefy multi-million dollar major league contract, and yet. He was still living out of his van down by the beach in California. Along with Matt Foley? Ha ha ha. Um, yeah, it wasn't like he was forced to or anything. It was just like his choice. He was so used to it. I, or you know, or maybe he just dug, he just dug the simplicity. I mean, you know, very much not by choice. I, I lived out of my car in Phoenix for eight months. So. I mean, I'm no one to say one way or another, but I, but it's just, there's just something that seems kind of so humble and sort of, and sort of grounded about the fact that during that time, he assuredly made enough money to have gotten an actual apartment or at least a small house someplace out here. And yet there he is kind of still sort of playing sort of playing it safe in the in the same old comfort in and I'm sure they're probably still just as happy to have him on that continuous <laughs> basis. Um but there's there's that there's um yeah the fact that the 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 shrewd tactical business mind that was so largely responsible for turning Sega around was a guy who 
you couldn't even really call a video game guy who just kind of carpet bagged over from Mattel. Um, and, and then there's what I think is the really fascinating juxtaposition of the fact that when you look at the people who were steering the ship for Sega and who helped to propel them ahead of Nintendo, they really, as you're talking to them, they don't come across very often as true video game people, so to speak. Unlike Nintendo, where you can tell that these people really have this abiding passion for the medium, for the most part, sometimes to the extent that it was kind of like the inverse. I, I wouldn't um, necessarily say that about Howard Lincoln. <laughs> well, yeah. oh, well, okay, one, okay, one guy. Or Peter Mayne either. I think he just really liked what he liked being a marketing bully but i'm but i'm I'm speaking in generalities here i'm speaking generally in terms of the tone of the way both sides came across is Mm -hmm. you've got and really as as i'll hopefully be able to kind of elucidate a little bit later it's what i think was a difference maker in the war was the fact that nintendo had great video game people sometimes to the detriment of what could have been the wisest business decisions they could have made in the middle of the war. Whereas Sega, on the other hand, you had people that knew how to be truly ruthless, cerebral marketers. You had some, you had some real latter day Don Draper types in there, but they more often than not just didn't have a clue what really made what really made a great game and how to make great games consistently. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's, I mean, they were, that's the thing that's sort of like funny about Sega, right? Is that during this period, you're having to rely so much. Well, because there's so much juxtaposition between what is happening in Japan, what Sega Japan is, what Nintendo Japan is to what Nintendo America is to what Sega America is. And like seeing both of those origins, right, Mm. of how, you know, Sega's, they already have the Genesis and the Game Gear. Tom just kind of goes and sees it, and then they kind of have to start the marketing of, like, well, how do we do this, you know? It's funny, because, like, I read part of the book. I kind of stuck right after the Game Gear, but, like, the documentary completely doesn't even mention that, like the Game Boy or Game Gear stuff. Well, they showed it in that one picture, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, you know what? Let's. If I'm going, to that's weird too. Like they didn't mention really the Game Boy, which is also important. Um, But I guess because the Game Gear was such a like not competitive thing to to the Game Boy, I think that takes away from what they're trying, the story they're trying to tell. So you know, yeah. Well, the audio book is like I don't know, eight hours long, give or take, maybe. They're not going to have an eight-hour-long documentary. Like, of course, they're going to cut out certain shit. Well, no, but, like, there's... The Game Boy one hands down. There's not a war there. So, like, yeah. they it doesn't go along with the story they're trying to tell. Um, so, because the war was really the the Super Nintendo and the Genesis and then some of the stuff that came later. But, like, you know, I, I think what's cool is just going through and seeing, okay, it really took some people that aren't necessarily gaming people to say, here, we have this plan. Let's start picking away at things that Nintendo is really good at. And I mean, yeah, here, you know, here's the thing. I mean, 
Sean, you brought up the point about like, you know, Nintendo is kind of headed up by more gamers. Mm-hmm. But it's like that's not necessarily a good thing. Like I would right. I would actually much rather have business people to an extent making some decisions because I think like gamers will get you no know, fly too close to the sun or get blinded by you yeah. know business realities or well, the same thing that would happen with the Sega Japan people, right? They didn't understand what the marketers in Sega America were trying to tell them, like, hey, this works. Well, the, the way to, I kind of yeah. the the way I kind of saw it is Nintendo's sort of commitment to gaming as an art form. And and this is where I'll where I'll agree with Mark kind of wholeheartedly, is it I think that was what eventually won Nintendo the war, but it had to cost them a lot of battles along the way first for right. them to get there. Because in the nineties, uh Sega, Tom Kalinske in particular, was able to see which way the wind was blowing. He was able to to get his finger on the pulse of what was of what was changing, what had been untapped, and they were able to use that to kind of overcome the weakness of as I of as I said, Nintendo having you know almost undebatably the better overall libra- library of games, but Sega was able to present itself in a way that appeal to an audience that, you know, Nintendo was just get was just getting kind of bored of. I mean, hell, I'm I'm coming over here from the Rodlich and Broadcasting Network, so so let's do allow me to sing you the song of my people and phrase this kind kind of in the form of a wrestling metaphor. Uh it was Eric Bischoff and the brass at WCW looking at the cartoony shit that the WWF was doing in the mid nineties seeing that people were getting were getting restless and then churning out something that people had never seen before that maybe couldn't match the WWF on some levels, say production quality, but it absolutely for years on end surpassed them in others. But again, as was also the case, they just weren't able to sustain that in the long run because eventually that veneer kind of wore off and all of a sudden the shortcomings just, they just couldn't be ignored anymore. Well, and it's also funny that the corporation eventually got in the way <laughs> very much like I, Sega Japan very eventually got in the way for Sega America. Uh, I, so. I assume, I assume you're talking about RoboCop and Sting teaming up, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was one of the, <laughs> one of the, that that's, I, I totally agree with you. Um, Sean, like, the entire time, I mean, like, I've already seen it. I mean, th- again, like, obviously, histories of video game stuff has existed. There was another one that Netflix had that we were going to do a show on. You might do on, do it eventually. It is, I just feel like I need to watch it again because I completely, it's been so long now that a lot of that got out of my head. But, like, that was the exact same thing I was thinking of. Wow, there's so many parallels to almost the same trajectory between WWE being the mega, we're number one, we're the only thing around, and then WCW comes in and absolutely, like, just floors everyone and, you know, changes the way you, you look at wrestling and, and then eventually dies out to the point where, like, same thing with Sega, you know, they revolutionize everything and then Nintendo's absolutely, you know, shell-shocked and... And then eventually Nintendo, because they do a little bit of 
of attitude themselves, right? They they can get that that power back, but yeah, and you see, and that's yeah. and that's where Mark really has a great point is the fact that you had a company that was being run by people who were kind of so entrenched inside this fortified gamer bubble. And in any industry, when you have that, sometimes that is exactly what you need is somebody else who has had their eyes elsewhere. And it's, it can be kind of a double edged sword though, because, uh, you know, one of the things that really ruined the LA Times for a lot of years was they brought in a General Mills executive, uh, who didn't, who didn't understand journalism and didn't understand journalistic ethics. Uh, going back to wrestling, WCW at one point, he was nearly run into the ground by a fucking pizza man. Yeah. Like Nintendo. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in some cases, if you have somebody who can come in and can kind of, parlay those broadly applicable skills and mindsets um, across industries and kind of pick up on the nuances of a new one that can carry you a long way. And that can revolution revolutionize the whole industries. And in this case, you know, yes, yeah, Sega might've eventually burned out. They might've lost, but it goddamn sure wasn't without making an impact either. Well, I mean, and, and, you know, Sega spurred on, one of the ones that are still existing today. So like, that's, what's cool is like, let's, let's take that approach here because obviously it's, this is a story of the rise of Sega, how Nintendo starts and then how eventually Nintendo keeps going. Um, I, I don't think that we need you, we, you need us to go through the whole history lesson. Probably at this point, if you're listening, you, you don't need to have watched this documentary to know what we're talking about. Uh, maybe some of the finer points that we can, you know, get into, which is what I want to do. But I like, let's take it from this point of when Nintendo is, is starting, right? They, they have to start from humble beginnings and barely watch people buy their first system at a store. And then they go all of a sudden from, because they're the only thing in town, they can start really hammering these uh these retail retailers like no you're gonna sell our thing the way we want to sell it you're gonna sell it the price that we want to sell it you're gonna have a certain amount of retail space for our product you're not gonna be able to have other competitors around like being this absolute monolith of a of a company and then like just i it was that was the most fascinating part to me of like just getting to see how Nintendo was slowly like picked away at and picked away at with so many different things that all and all together were able to get Sega there. See, and like, you, say, say, yeah. you say that, and whereas on the other hand, my mind just went to, God damn it, you've really been ma- been mastering your anti-consumer bullshit for decades, haven't you? Right, yeah, no, exactly. Right. <laughs> you see where it starts. You see where it starts. You see where it starts the whole, um, that question of, what was it? Was it a politician that said, is this ever going to come down in price later? And they're like, well, we don't know. <laughs> like, uh, well, they, that's their, their question that people still have on their games, right? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, they might sell you the, the console cheaper at, at some point, but the games are still going to be 60 bucks or whatever price it's, it's going to be. Um, but like, what, what did you, um, Mark find? Interesting about all that, like just how Sega was able to knock Nintendo off its perch. 
I mean, yeah, it was good. Like, you know, the Walmart stuff was interesting to hear about like, Walmart being anti, you know. That was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Nintendo's own uh, launch was interesting because, you know, they were only in FAO Schwartz and it was basically like, hey, if these, these units don't sell, we're not going to come, this thing is going to come out in America. Uh, I thought the woman that Sega had was pretty cool, like the marketing woman. Like she was. Oh, Ellen Van Berserk is one of the coolest people. Yeah. Um, I think reading, when I read the book, like I came away from, she's one of the people that like I really liked out of the whole, out of everybody that, that is important figures. Like but she really felt not only important, a, but cool. Yeah. Like you can tell she's not a gamer, but she's still interested in the product and that's kind of good enough, really. Like, right. She doesn't know, she doesn't need to know, like, you know, the second, the, the third world in Sonic the Hedgehog 2. But the fact that she knows what Sonic the Hedgehog is is cool. Or, you know, good. Uh, yeah, like, Nintendo, I mean, they had a monopoly at the time because they, they literally were the only thing going on. I mean, the Sega had the Master Well, they system, saved but, video games, so that helped yeah. them. <laughs> I mean, Sega had the Master System, but no one cared about that thing. So, it was, yeah, it was all about the It's games. hilarious they didn't even mention it in this thing. They The Master System didn't even exist. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Master System, system didn't exist. <laughs> like, who has ever, have any of us even played one? No. I've, like, like I've, seriously, I didn't know, like, until, it wasn't until, like, I, you know, I had read some history of video game books that I knew that they even had a Master System. I thought Sega started with the Genesis. Like, I knew about the power-based converter for the Genesis. That's, like, this, like, ma- like Master System full-time thing you can put into it, but that's about it. Like, I never played a Master System. No one really has. So, no, yeah. I, I, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with it. I think I maybe played one for a few minutes one time. Yeah, but yeah, my first my first Sega experience was the Genesis. I mean, I have more experience with the Turbo Graphics than the Master System. Yikes! Yeah. Uh, Yikes! And man, you were man, you were a scholar of classic systems and hardware. Yeah, that surprised. Uh, so yeah, like I thought that was good. Uh, I mean. Yeah, Sega got, or not Sega, Nintendo got com- somewhat complacent, too. So, yeah. yeah, the brash young upstart. It happens. Yeah. It, it happens. You know, the, the, the very worst thing that can happen is to have no competition. I, I like the uh, Tom coming in with those, like, four points and how he was able to, like, they were able to go through each one of those and just, okay, I mean, think about, EA, I mean, Trip Hawkins was doing stuff with EA Sports, right? But, like... It really wasn't until you had the Madden game and it was exclusive to to Genesis mm-hmm. for like I think the first couple of years or something like that. It eventually got on Super Nintendo because I had Madden ninety six. Um and I think the Madden ninety five was on there too, I'm not sure. Uh but like I always found that interesting of how that started. Nintendo didn't care about that stuff, right? I mean they had their Tecmo Bowls and, and all that, but like that was a major factor to get people that are not necessarily always gamers to look at that and go, "Oh, there's a game for me," you know. And then to which, funny enough, that's kind yeah. of that's kind of become Nintendo's uh, market ever since the Wii came along. No, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, they do, but they still generally like their system is still not the the system you want to play your sports games on because the well, Switch no. is completely under yeah. Well, no, exactly. Yeah. But I mean, but what I'm saying is the main thing that Nintendo has been leaning on ever since the Wii yeah. is, you know, number one, it's got 
a gimmicky mechanic that's accessible and novel and fun for everybody. It's fun for the non-gamers because they don't because they have a way to play that they can manage more than having to be confused and overwhelmed by a dozen some buttons on a controller. People right. who are veteran gamers can get into it because, hey, this is kind of fresh, kind of different than what I'm used to, but I'm still able to have roughly the same experience. Um, they got the classic familiar library. It's all good. But where they've always kind of fallen short ever since then is the fact that the ports of a lot of other games that were hugely successful on other consoles have often been, to put it nicely, fucking terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, especially with a lot of big multiplayer titles now, titles nowadays. Um, Overwatch is an abomination on, on the Switch. Um, so is, uh, so quite frankly is, de- is dead by daylight. And if you go back to the Wii U, that yeah. was hardware that was so frustrating that a lot of third-party developers refused to work with it at all. Well, yeah, I mean, you could say the same for... I mean, it, that that's existed since the GameCube. Yeah, yeah. other than, like, yeah. the GameCube was the last time where they actually had a shot at being similar. And then there was still times where the GameCube version wasn't good, but there are GameCube standout <laughs> games that are uh, just as good or, or whatever. Eternal, but I mean, Eternal Darkness, the original Resident Evil 4... Resident Evil uh, remake on there. Oh yeah, oh absolutely. Well, but even like okay, Soul Calibur was. I I had Soul Calibur on the GameCube because I wanted to play as Link, and I I thought it was still as good as the Xbox or or PS2 version. But you know, I mean, if you go to the to the 64 to to you know later on the the Wii Wii U, like all the versions of those games that are ports usually. Because it's inferior hardware compared to their brethren, yeah. um, you know they're not gonna play as well. Or the Wii just had to have completely different mechanics because of the Wii remote, which made mm-hmm. it to where it's like, why do I want to play almost any of these games on on here? But <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and I obviously you're alluding to the the one of the big things that that ended up hurting Nintendo was the, which I don't necessarily know that that's. Like the major thing that wound up making everybody go, I want to have a Genesis. It was already all those other things, but they, they obviously painted the picture of Mortal Kombat getting to have the uh, blood yes. and, yes. uh, Super Nintendo not, you know, getting to have the blood, uh, as the huge reason, right? Um, I think obviously Sonic as well. I, I mean, like that was fascinating to me too. The whole, that really was one of the first ever. If not the first ever, like we're actually trying to do a worldwide launch here of a game, mm. and like it was Sonic Two, you know, mm. and and how they had to prepare that and th- choosing this day and, and and all of that stuff, and and they went ahead head to head with Mario and decided, okay, we're gonna we're choose this blue hedgehog, and it's gonna be the thing, you know, and uh, you don't think I like it's it's weird to think about like. That difference in Sonic being so fast and then Mario super slow, <laughs> but it's like yeah, but I mean yeah, Sonic game has I don't know twelve levels or like twelve stages. I mean maybe like fourteen or sixteen. Mario has you know fifty. <laughs> yeah. See and see and again, that's another example of where 
it's abundantly apparent that you didn't have video game people kind of run kind of running the show was that they just saw faster we this means we're better and i think they genuinely believe that whereas and don't get me wrong i say this is someone who absolutely loves the first three sonic the first three sonic games and the two uh kind of style throwbacks that uh came out came out a couple of years ago but you also can't deny that mario off while it may be slower paced also offers the slightly i know i know deeper is a laughable term when describe when describing well, a platformer or a mario game but it is but it is a deeper more varied more varied yeah there was a lot of variety in those levels it, I mean, yeah. it's longer, but like you know, if you think about it, Mario has like basically like six or seven distinct worlds by itself, and there's like five right. stages in each. But it's like yeah, yeah by the third or fourth, you're getting kind of tired of it. Well, but it's like, also but it's also more replay value, sure. as as well as has been proven a number of times over yeah. number of times over the years. And the thing is, I think the sign. I think if Sega had had some really kind of set kind of savvy kind of not to gatekeep too much. But true gamers among the among their people, that you would have kind of seen that just kind of admitted at least in hindsight in the documentary is that that's where we all where we always fell short. Well, yeah, like Nintendo definitely believed in value, like giving I mean, you. Well, think about like Mario versus like something like Kid Chameleon. I mean, Mario has a world part like world structure, but Kid Chameleon has. At least as many levels as Mario World, <laughs> but because you, you can't really see them that well in like an overall, like an overarching world, they, you know that's why it doesn't seem like that. True, but Nintendo has also been able to take Mario and keep things not just fresher and newer, but but also equally as enjoyable over yeah, the years. On the SNES, there was three Mario games, actually four, and one and a half of those sucked. <laughs> let's see on the SNES there was let's see there was Super Mario World did Mar- Mario Kart that's a yeah, good Mario one Kart. that's okay, okay. Uh, RPG Mario Mario RPG that's good Mario's Missing which is fucking abysmal when did uh, uh, when did Paper Mario come out that was Paper Game Mario Game. yeah GameCube okay, okay. Uh, and then there was uh, Yoshi's Island which is that's like, good half a good game <laughs> yeah I mean the the whole having to grab Mario thing is kind of annoying, but it's I thought it was a good like just doing something different with the platformer, um, you know. And I think overall, um, it's just then like we keep going back to that, right? But it's just that's it's it's honestly the truth of, and I think it's encompassed by the part where they show um, the. Which I, they went into more detail in that documentary about that than I thought they would have, because that's a kind of major. That's I wouldn't say major chunk, but it's a. They go into some deep storytelling in the book about how uh, Goodby winds up being the the marketing team, right? And like, there's a lot more story there than they could really tell you, but they they did a lot more than I thought they would. I thought that would be something they kind of just, they toss in the commercials in there and then not explain that much. And like though, if, you know, looking back, I went back and, you know, looked at some of those commercials and it's like, it really does seem like night and day 
how Sega was able to just, they really were just wonderful at, man, this seems awesome. I want to go play this thing. <laughs> like, and, and Nintendo's over here with these, you know, ah, whatever commercials and, and yeah, you know, so like, I, I think they're, we go back to that, but it's like, uh, Sega really just had this, at least at the time when for Sega of America, I really had these smart, uh, marketing tactics of being able to get you to, Hey, let's buy this system right now. You know, I maybe I don't think about all the games I play on it or didn't play on it, but yeah, you know, and they stole, it sold them a bunch of units at least. But I, yeah. I think also it's like we have to think about that, that time frame. We're still looking at like game, gaming isn't like it is today, right? Where we have so many games and most of, and a lot of the people that are buying those systems, you're not buying 20, 30 games for those kids. You're buying one or two, three or four, you know, well, like, I mean, even games back then were more expensive than they are now. I mean, it's funny. People are freaking out about $70 games now and it's like, there were games back in the days that were eighty dollars. Like, yep, exactly. Games were games were expensive, right? Because there was no like, oh, here this is what they cost relative to what the, the market is. The funniest part is like the most expensive games back then were sports games. <laughs> yeah, mm. well, they still were on the sixty four. They were like seventy bucks. <laughs> so, like that didn't change for a while. I remember, I remember, I bought this like college hoops game that was. Well, I didn't buy it, and I, I coaxed my mom into it. At a store, it was like sixty five dollars, you know, and and I would have never if if my adult self was sitting there going, "What the hell is wrong with you?" But like, <laughs> you know, it, like at that point, I I really wanted it for some reason. Uh, so you know, that's the thing is is like still the whole how much games cost, how much everything. So like, Sega could get away with having a bunch of games that necessarily weren't good in its library, but if you had the one or two or three, right, or four that were good, you could sell the console on that. And then they buy those three or four games that would come out, and and that's enough. Right? You didn't have to have this library of games that comes out later that people are going to keep buying games for, like I think you do today, because mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. Um... Anything you guys want to like get into about what was uh, discussed in the the doc we haven't touched on, or um, it's not necessarily something that was discussed, but I will, but I will throw this out there. Uh, I absolutely adore the sixteen bit interstitial scenes. It, oh, it those are good. Every, yeah, it it kept everything so so entertaining and so in, and so engaging. Um, in in places where I think in the runtime where you would find a lot of documentaries starting to become extremely, extremely dry. If you didn't have just an absolutely stunning gotcha moment or inflammatory quote or something, um, it, it keeps you involved with just these these lovely little uh, Genesis like scenes, including even some even some rather impressive Mortal Kombat knockoffs. Yeah. To depict the war between the executives. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, um, if we're going to talk about anything else, let's, let's kind of jump ahead a little bit. And yeah. what, what did you guys think of the point when 
Nintendo decided to take the gloves off and kind of start outplaying Sega at their own game. When that was they, inter- interesting I mean, to play it loud stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that, but I, I mean, they had the the two things I was thinking about the Sega for the CD thing, where <laughs> Sega Japan kind of fucked over Sega America, and then the you know, and then it's like, well, and then okay, also but, fucked Sony. Yeah. Oh God! Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, it's like that that won't come back to 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 uh. Haunt us at any point in our lives, will it? <laughs> well, to be fair, Nintendo also fucks Sony, so... You know what? I mean, it, I, it, would have been, it would have been interesting to talk about the Nintendo PlayStation a little. I mean, especially since... Yeah, that I was guy. surprised that didn't come up at all. Me too. Like, you're going to mention the Sega and Sony part, but you're not going to mention the Nintendo and Sony part. Yeah. How and does it ever get so much as a discussion? They talk about it a lot in the book, obviously. But, like, it's weird that that is a part of gaming history that's important to note that... And also weird that they just called it Silicon Graphics and not that that's actually Philips, like a company that still exists today, mm, that mm-hmm. that had uh, gotten together with Nintendo, um, and ended up making that they were gonna make their CD thing that didn't happen. Um, so like, it's it's interesting that they don't mention. I mean, I, granted, it didn't come out right. Like, it didn't. It wasn't a thing. But still, like, you could have mentioned, oh, this even further fueled why Sony wound up making the PlayStation is because, oh, Nintendo also screwed them over. And, yeah. you know, it's not just Sega. They made it seem like, oh, Sega messed them up, so that's why they made the PlayStation. It's like, no. Jeez. <laughs> that was that was a real <laughs> nexus of the console wars where I personally think that if Sega and Sony had been able to get... Well, no. In fact, you know what? Scratch that. Before I even finish that thought, let, let's just be even more blunt about it. If Sega of Japan had decided to not stick their dick in the deal with Sony, that could have turned the console wars in a completely opposite direction. But Sega never. Sega of America, their greatest foe wasn't Nintendo. It was never Nintendo. It was yeah. Sega of Japan the entire way, just from just from Kalinsky's very first pitch meeting onward. That was their greatest enemy, just because of the ridiculous, foolish pride. Yeah, it's a pride thing. Yeah. Yeah, that that just sabotaged every single decision because man, it wasn't our idea. I, I didn't think it was funny that he got revenge on Sega at a point that with the Silicon gra- Silicon Graphics thing when he brought mm-hmm. you know he brought the Sega Japan guy and the, the guy was like, hey, I don't care, and he called Nintendo like, hey, you might want to talk to these people like because he because he fucking had enough. He yeah. had enough with be with being screwed over by his own people, and quite frankly, yeah. I don't blame him because God. Damn it! And, and then it's and, so the the like this the absolute. It's funny to to learn that the absolute killer decision was made by Sega Japan themselves. Of oh, we're gonna release the Saturn at E3 without telling anyone. Yeah, just rush and the then out and now. then knock Walmart and Target off, and and think that you're gonna sell you sell your system well. Yeah, launched KB Toys. <laughs> like, yeah, KB Toys and. Silly, stupid uh, bastards! Uh, all the and then of course, what really helped Sony as well is the Nintendo delaying the sixty-four because it wasn't ready. Well, uh, and ult- yeah. and ultimately, the really mm-hmm. hilarious part was the fact that by the time all was said and done, Sony had been dicked over by both parties and yeah. ended up just deciding that it was going to just turn guns on both of them. 
It was no like it's cool because they do tell that story in the book as well, even though it doesn't have to do with Sega or Nintendo. But like they actually go through and tell you the PlayStation started at the music division in Sony mm-hmm. with some of the people that worked over in the music division were kind of just fooling around with it. Um, there was a one guy, I can't remember his name. He really wanted to to like get working on a system, and he kept trying to tell the the head of Sony at the time, like, hey. Look at what's happening with Nintendo and Sega. Like, this could really work. We could really do it. And, but they were stuck on trying to be a partner because they were so, they wanted to kind of dip their toe. They didn't want to just full force go in, right? Because they were obviously worried about, well, what if we flame out? Then what happens to us? So, like, it's interesting to, like, end up learning that story of Sony kind of got pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until the guy finally goes, you know what? <laughs> Screw both of these guys. We're doing it. And they wound up, you know, being the, the big console maker that they are right now, you know? So, like, it's, you know, I, obviously Nintendo is still existing and still doing well. Um, but yeah, Sega just, it seemed like from that point after they messed over on Sony, they just, they were going wobbling and, and eventually just couldn't, couldn't compete after that. Just thanks, guys. You both poked the bear enough times, and now it's going to eat you both. It all. It also seemed like they didn't have any ideas beyond Sonic. Either. No, like, they didn't. Yeah. I mean, uh, no, they had some, but I mean, Sonic's obviously the, the the you know platform mascot. I mean, no right, but like when you look at Nintendo, but, they have other franchises, right? That are. I mean, yeah, Mario is like, the big one. But the there other fr- didn't really go go into depth about any of those. And you didn't say, oh, and we got Zelda and Metroid and, you know, a bunch of other shit. Like, that's kind of interesting. It was always like Mario versus Sonic and that's it. Well, because Sega didn't have anything else to compete. So, like, if they start talking about – they, because this was really a Sega documentary that they had to throw the Nintendo stuff in there because it's a war. That's this the way really, it felt, yeah. Yeah, it really felt more of a, like – well, we're trying, we're going to try to paint all these Sega people in the nicest way we possibly can while also having to talk about their demise, basically. Well, it's just like and, the WCW uh, documentaries on like the WWE network. <laughs> well, history is written by the winners. Yeah. I mean, um, this guy was an independent party, but like, that, that. yeah, I don't know who had a hand in the this version of the document. I think, you know, Blake Harris is obviously a producer and, and, deciding some of the stuff that gets included but it feel does feel like there was there was let's try to be as nice as possible to all these people that we're having to interview and like not painted in a really bad light like um i don't know that seems weird to me too that you're not gonna when you're talking about how nintendo eventually gains ground it is also through the games right it is also through having zelda having metroid i mean by the time pokemon comes around Sega's on its last leg, so it doesn't really matter. But, like, you know, like, having these other, um, maybe not, like, brand-defying games, but also just having so much support from these other companies that have games that you still think about all these years later. You know, the Final Fantasies, the, the, um, uh, you know, Sega had the sports games, but, like, Nintendo had, like you said, Sean, everything else. And, and that wound up being an important, uh, factor at the end of it is just now, not only did you have to deal with Nintendo, you had to deal with Sony, 
and the Ooh. amount of partners that you had were very small at at the end, you know. Well, so well, yeah, I mean, you you had a lot of people who had burned a whole lot of bridges. Yeah, I mean, and then also you know, Tom leaves in like '96, like after the Saturn thing, so. Mm-hmm. Whoever the small amount of t- and then Steve Race, who is extremely important in the marketing thing, then, goes to Sony. You know, well, it's funny because uh, Tom leaves and Peter Moore takes over Sega. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but he did run Dreamcast for a while, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, what did you guys think of the? I'd never seen. I'd seen some of the stuff with the, you know, court proceedings or whatever when when uh, the Congress. Gets involved for trying to, which eventually leads to the, uh, you know, ESRB getting formed. Absolutely Lieberman blew my hack. mind. Yeah, that was kind of interesting to see those. Lieberman, like Lieberman seems like such a hack. He yeah. always has. Yeah, it's such a like. Oh, he's leading the charge at that point against against video games. Uh, I mean, it's obviously a good thing that that video games were able to defend themselves well enough to just make their own rating system so that the Congress didn't have to get involved, but. Yeah, that was interesting to like Bill White, who had switched sides at that point, is taking shots at Howard Lincoln on the other side of the table with the super uh, scope, which I had one of those. Yeah, until uh, Lincoln had his moment of listen here, you little shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a that was a real he took aim at the king and he fucking missed. Yeah. He took aim at the king and he shot himself in the dick. <laughs> Yeah, I, is there um, anything else before we, uh, I guess, move on to talking about how we feel about this, the console wars that are happening right now? Um, anything thought, about, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, the Howard guy was pretty good. The Howard and Nestor guy, I forget his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Howard Phillips, that was it. He seemed pretty genuine. He also mm-hmm. seemed like, he also looked like Charles Martinet's kid. So that was weird, but funny. <laughs> oh yeah, he's like super. Um, his story is super interesting because he winds up being like him and Gail Tilden, which they showed in that documentary a few times, are the yeah. major forces around why Nintendo Power becomes yeah. such an well, important. She was she was weird because they didn't explain her story at all. So like the first time she's on, it's just like editor or like co-founder of Nintendo Power said something about that, but it's like you don't even tell here? us that Nintendo had a magazine. <laughs> yeah, that was important. Well, like, well, I get them. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say it, was, it wasn't until like way later when they got into his story, like him and her and that other guy were like, you know, doing the arcade business and stuff like that. We were like, oh, that's her. Like, we should have maybe clued that in a little earlier. I thought, you know, she was a, a big, a huge Nintendo fan girl, or that's how it kind of came across to me. Right, and it's like no, she actually worked at Nintendo. Like, no, she was a like, huge oh, that, part of that. That would have helped, you know, introduce it a little earlier on. <laughs> That's what was surprising to me because they showed so much of, you know, Ellen uh, Van Burskirk, but they did not like really tell the story of Gail, who's very important because not just from the Nintendo power perspective, but I think she also had. Um, a lot of decisions on how certain things looked and the marketing and, and certain characters have running certain characters and all of that. So like, that was interesting that they kind of, uh, shortened her story and they didn't, uh, they, they showed this in the high score, uh, documentary, but they didn't really talk about it here was the whole Nintendo having, uh, the people that you can call to, to tell you how to get through games and stuff like that. Oh God, what a yeah. brilliant money grab that was. <laughs> 
like that's cool because you know this is before you have all these strategy guides you could buy and everything. Like, just call somebody that all they do is actually play video games, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's uh, I I thought over I guess overall, what did you? I thought it was a really good hour and thirty minutes, which to me that's like the sweet spot of documentaries. I think once you start getting past that, that's yeah, when you start running into like, oh, this is getting overboard here you know i got to the point um there was a good middle and end you know start middle end and there were some things like i guess like we poked at that they could have talked about but i felt overall for having to condense a very thorough book into an hour and 30 minutes they did pretty well pretty decently i thought it was like much better than that high score documentary that series I thought that thing was weight was it was it was a little too bloated, but it was all over the place. And even like in the same episode, like they would like focus on like four different like disparate topics. And I was like, wait, why are you doing this? Like, just focus on one thing. It's fine. <laughs> I I still need to watch it. I haven't gotten. Yeah, if yet. you if you ever do, I guess we can do the talking about that. You know what? Um, I could I could probably how many episodes is it? It's six, six. episodes that are like Is that it? What, forty five minutes? No, because they don't they stop right before they get to the what PlayStation one? Yeah, it is it's that, the same break point as this thing, pretty much. Yeah, but it it, it seems yeah. like the, it they, was a trial thing. Like they were gonna just let's see if this gets traction on Netflix and then if it does, we'll do more episodes. Shit, I could yeah. watch that over the next week. But like the problem yeah. with that thing, like I said, is like it. Well, it has topics that are just very incongruous with one another, and then interviews. Some of the people that interview are just like really like, uh, like, why are you interviewing this person? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's extremely broad. You know, yeah. the really, and this is just a general, just random tangential thought, kind of about gamer culture and media. It's astounding that here we're talking about. A CBS All Access documentary, which don't get me wrong, it's it's a superlative one. It's it's outstanding. It's entertaining. I I have hardly a bad thing at all to say about it. But then you've got this six part Netflix docu series about gaming, and I'm not sure that you get as much information about either as you could get from some of the better informed and researched YouTube channels that get just no love whatsoever whatsoever no attention they're they're not household names they don't have huge distribution yeah but it's all i mean at least this documentary is based on this you know the like harris you know taking all that information or collating it into a into a good book that's why this series or this movie's good in the first place <laughs> oh no i'm I, again i'm i'm not i'm not entirely demeaning them i'm just sitting here and thinking to myself you're you're talking about how kind of all over the place high score was and I'm just thinking about a lot of the channels that I watch and how impressed I always am by how tightly focused everything is and how well all the episodes flow. Yeah. It's it's just amusing to me. I agree. I felt like they – I felt like the problem with High Score was that they tried to put in so much stuff because they felt like they had to answer to so many different – gamer audiences that are out there now mm-hmm. that they didn't like focus it very well 
I'm not saying you have to go in order and tell me every single little thing that happened from the Atari to PlayStation 1, because that obviously would have been way more than six episodes. And I get it that you had to put in some of the competitive stuff because obviously competitive gaming is important now and streaming is important now and all of that. But it's like the way they do it is just weird. Like you go from showing a kid at a Nintendo competition smack in the middle of talking about some other thing and then you go and talk about that same other thing after (laughs) you finish with the interstitials. Yeah. Yeah. And they have, like, like, they talk about, like, the Sega competition in, like, episode five. And it's like, why don't you pair that up with the Nintendo kid, you know? Exactly. Back. And just have it, like, a, uh, have it be a, uh, one episode about competitive gaming or whatever. Well, know? my, my, my favorite one is they have, they talk about PC RPGs for a second, like RPG, like early RPGs. And they interview Ken and Roberta Williams, which is fine. They interview, uh, Lord, Brit- Lord British, uh, Richard Garriott, and that's fine. Nice. And then they interview uh, Yoshitaka Amano, the artist for Final Fantasy. And it's like, what? Like, I, I, I'll, I will say, like, Final, the guy from Final Fantasy should be interviewed, but what about Sakaguchi? You know, the guy who or directed even, the game? Even Nomura or, you know, mm-hmm. like, someone. Like, no, yeah. no offense to the artist, but it's like, who, who cares? You know, and I think they also interviewed, like, Sonic the Hedgehog's artist, and it's, like, uh, there's someone called Yuji Naka who created Sonic more than the artist. <laughs> like, right, yeah. I mean, if you, have, if you have an artist episode, that's fine, but they, they don't. Oh, like, they, they just, like, throw these interviews in with, like, randomly, and it's, like, this is a little weird. See, I would, I would, I would love that. I would, I would love to watch an episode where they just talk to preeminent artists, yeah, they don't. Um, they don't have that various episode. genres. They don't. Oh, because you see, that's that's such a missed opportunity to talk about how yeah. so many of those uh, disparate styles kind of. Red Bull also has a series, I think, that they did that was pretty good. Yeah, but that well. was like seven years ago. <laughs> no, but that one also goes into different things like sound and yeah, um, other things of gaming that you don't always necessarily think about, which which is good, but. Um, Going going back to this, I, let's um, I, I guess if you had to give it a, I, I don't know, do y'all do this on TV party? Do you give things scores at the end, or how do you? No, Mark just how, kind of Mark Mark just kind of does the whole, as he puts it, I think final thoughts, fifty words or less. Um, but if we're to put a score on it, well, yeah, like would, okay, let's just do that. Let's put what are your final thoughts, fifty words or less? Are you recommending this to people? Obviously, I mean. You're paying. I mean, if you don't have a free trial, which obviously, I mean, not trying, not trying to trick anyone, not trying to get people to not pay six dollars or seven, whatever this costs mm-hmm. to get CBS All Access for a month. Uh, now, you know, you can just uh, sign up for a free trial, watch it, and then you know, cancel before your free trial ends. Mm-hmm. Um, are you recommending this to people? You want me to go first or should Mark? Oh, you can go. Okay. Um... Fantastically entertaining, remarkably, remarkably informative, engaging format, a little bit skewed. Okay, it's very skewed, yes. Um, but I think it really paints both sides in just the right light, ultimately. I would highly recommend it. At the very least, I would give it an 8 out of 10. Yeah, I was going to give it an 8 out of 10 also. Like, I don't find it as skewed as you do, per se, but I still think it was informative and entertaining. And it's- 
it's good to see these people who are literally there tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, 8 out of 10 as well, um, which on the WTM scale, that's a great. Uh, so, like, it's it's a great documentary that includes pretty much everybody that was important that is discussed in the book, giving their mm-hmm. thoughts on what they felt during those times, and you really do get a history lesson of what that was like back then in the first console wars before what we have today and shaping what we have today. And if you care about the history of games at all, I think it's, it's awesome to have that and be able to watch it. And, you know, and then you have the book or other things to read if you want to go into it more. I, I think for being a nice snippet of history of Nintendo, history of Sega during that time and what they did to, against each other that it's pretty awesome i would say um so because we are in a or about to be in well technically we're still in but are about to be in a new generation of console wars between sony and their playstation 5 and microsoft and their xbox series x and game pass and what that means for gaming as compared to what is about to be 70 dollars video games that you're going to go out and buy uh at least for the big AAA companies, and now what that could mean for these smaller companies and what they price their entry, their games at, uh, furthermore, and then everything that comes with that. Like, what are your feelings going into, I guess, this next-gen console war? Are you excited for it? Are you a bit worried about it? Like, thinking about where we came from to right now, I go, what, what, how do you feel about a, the PlayStation Microsoft taking off? Uh, Sean, oh, I, think, I guess. I think, oh, um, I mean, I'm never an early adopter. I, I'm really not. I when a new console comes out, I like to give it about a year or two for kinks to kind of get ironed out, for libraries to build up. Uh, don't get me wrong; there, there's no question which one I'm buying. It's going to be a PlayStation Five uh, because I've always found that. I think they're the ones who are more dedicated to, for lack, for lack of a better word that I'm groping for and can't find, uh, kind of gaming purism, sort of, in that that's always come across as that is their first and foremost focus is on not just games, but also on putting out a massive library of superb, uh, first party games. But that being said, I think we're entering a period wherein that gap um, of, in terms of both originals and graphical power, is becoming so so narrow that it's going to be intriguing to see what Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo do to maintain whatever their edges happen to be. Because, you know, anymore, I think more often than not, the graphical gap between Xbox and PlayStation in particular is becoming almost negligible. Um, it's, it's, I think, why Microsoft acquiring Bethesda is such a huge deal. Because with crossplay becoming more and more widespread, and with there being now fewer and fewer exclusives, to set brands apart. Um, having 
access to that many franchises as either full-fledged exclusives or, you know, at best, timed exclusives going forward, that's monumental because I'm not sure there are that many developers of that proportion that Sony could reasonably acquire to level that playing field because I don't see them ever just, you know, full, just fully buying out a Ubisoft or, you know, definitely not, definitely not electronic arts. Uh, uh, if they did it though, yeah, they'd buy a Japanese. Yeah, it would be, yeah, yeah, it it would be. And in fact, yeah, Square would probably be, would probably be the first one they would, the first one they would go after. The the first one they'd go after is Capcom. Or Konami. No, because Konami Konami would be, I guess Konami would be, you could say the, as from a gaming standpoint, because they don't make that much, that many games anymore from a, you know, traditional console perspective, it would seem that they would be the easiest get, but because of all the other things that they do, pachinko and everything else, yeah. maybe more, <laughs> more difficult. Um, I, I, yeah. I don't think, I'll be honest, just as a brief, as a brief sidebar, I don't think it's a matter of if Konami eventually gets gobbled up by one of the consoles, I think it's a matter of when. Um, yeah, I think that they they've kept taking more and more rope to hang themselves with with a lot of the with a lot of their business decisions, and I don't think it's something that may even happen within about the next year or so. But it wouldn't surprise me if by the next console generation they did get fully bought up. Capcom I don't know about because Capcom has undergone such a resurgence in terms of how much new life they've breathed into new franchises mm-hmm. Any over, the franchises. Past, over the past few years. Well, that's kind of what I meant. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said mm-hmm. new. I meant old. Um, into old franchises that had either stagnated or were just fully dead that I think they can still get some more mileage out of that and continue to kind of redefine themselves. Um, I think their next generation of fighting games is going to be extremely telling because they can't afford another, I think, another debacle like the early Street Fighter V launch or the entirety of Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. Um, but I think they're really going to need to pull a Resident Evil with those with those brands in the very near future. Um, otherwise, Warner Brothers is going to continue to just run them right over. But anyway, that being neither here nor there. Um, you know, I think the big one is going to be who puts out the better subscript the better premium subscription service. Uh, I know that Microsoft game that the Game Pass has been hugely, hugely successful. Um, I personally am a big PS Plus guy. I know that PS Now has got a rather sizable library, but that it doesn't compare to what Game Pass is offering on a continuous basis and in terms of how many new titles are being added at a time. But even then, you look at what Sony did in terms of, you want to talk about something that's really consumer friendly. They looked at their customer base honestly, and they acknowledged a lot of these people are going to either choose not to buy a PS5 at launch, or they're just not going to be able to. Um, and also kind of acknowledging that I think that they had a really thin launch library. 
So they're like, look, okay, if you do buy a PS5, we're going to sweeten the pot for you and incentivize this. We are going, in addition to all the other games where we're saying that your digital copies from the PS4, they're going to be backwards compatible, you're going to get a free upgrade, this and that, here you go. If you if you bite the bullet and buy the PS5, we're going to give you 18 of our top-tier games right off the bat with a PS Plus membership. You put down 10 bucks a month, these 18 games are 18 games are yours to play for as long as you're a member. That is huge. That is a huge, very friendly concession, in addition to having what's comparably a pretty reasonable price point. Um, and that's I, I think like, it's huge for people that are going to buy a PS5 and didn't own the PS4, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. own the PS4 very late and didn't get to play a lot of that stuff. Anybody oh, that already okay. has owned a PS4 during that entire time, I don't think that this really means a whole lot to them. But, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, in terms of a lot of, like, a lot of the multiplayer games that I play, my understanding as I've read it, and feel free to correct me if I've missed something, is that when it comes to games like, again, just throwing out the ones that, that I play, games like Apex Legends, Overwatch, Rainbow Six Siege, Mortal Kombat 11, um, you know, the PS4 versions are still going to be fully compatible with their PS5 counterparts. Yes. It's a, and it sounds and it sounds like that's going to be the case for at least a few years until the PS4 is fully phased out. Which and which and, and I would imagine when that happens, the developers of those games, the well the ones that are actually pay, by the way, so discounting Apex Legends, are probably gonna say, hey, when you switch over, we're going to let you kind of port everything else over, you get a free upgrade, no questions asked, you paid once, we're not gonna make you do it again. I mean, I think some of those games, but I don't think like Mortal Kombat we've ported over. Yeah, I, I, think... I mean, Mortal Kombat that does have Mortal Kombat 12. Or like so Overwatch. I mean, yeah, Overwatch yeah. doesn't come into the PS5. Overwatch, Overwatch is going to have an Overwatch 2, so that won't matter. Yeah. You know, like... Well, well, true. Yeah, well, who knows when Blizzard gets around to it. But... Yeah. It, it, well, well, it, it depends on if Activision pushes their hand... To make it come out pretty soon, or oh, that's true. <laughs> that, that that's true. I, I guess we'll know more about that in January. As a, as an over as a long suffering Overwatch vet, crikey, fuck! Yeah. I hope we learn more in January. Um, but it, they have that, so much Diablo Immortals news to talk about first. Yeah. <laughs> well, like but, Rainbow Six, you're definitely right. Ubisoft is just going to keep. They already said it. They it's going to be under a different name. Uh, Rainbow Six something uh, seeds something else something. Mm-hmm. Uh, for PS5 and Series X, but it's going to be supported, and they're pretty yeah. good about that uh, for the yeah, most part. But, I mean, but yeah. I like the fact that I've I've still got I think probably a few more a few more years left with those games where they're going to be viable on my current console. Um, yeah. But I, I really think that's what it's going to come down to going forward. Is it really is just going to be? Those bonuses, those subscription, those subscription models. Um, well, but I mean, you say that, but it's a real like, bummer for me since I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. But because, like, <laughs> that's interesting because, like, although Sony did make a large amount of their old titles available um, to stream, right? Because I think older than PS4, you're not, you can't download them. I think it's only PS4 yeah. games that you can download, right? 
I so, think that's the other. I think that's the other reason they probably decided to do it was when they finally had to acknowledge that everything that they, all the rumors, they kind of allowed to to kind of gather steam about. Oh boy, the PS5 is going to be backwards compatible all the way back to the PS2. When they finally had to admit it, I think they were also like, oh, people are going to be pissed. Uh, we better yeah. throw them something here. Yeah. Um, but. God, I had another. Oh, um, but kind of getting back to the exclusives thing for a second, because this just occurred to me. Um, Going forward, I do think that when those rare opportunities come up, this could be huge because there's going to be so few. Because I'm I'm thinking about the fact that um, when Bayonetta came out and it was such a huge success, the most the most baffling thing was that Platinum Games found so much trouble finding a backer for a sequel to this already mega-popular game, to the extent that the only reason we have Bayonetta 2 and a forthcoming Bayonetta 3 is because of all possible parties, Nintendo stepped up and said, and said, we love your, we love your game. We'd love to see you make another one. One catch. It's ours. Yeah, well, you, t- you just talked about Bayonetta being, you know, a big hit, but it wasn't. <laughs> like, yeah. it was a it was a big critical hit, sure, but it barely broke 200,000 copies. Yeah, it wasn't this big. Uh, well, it also didn't help that, what, didn't Xbox have like, exclusivity for a while? No, it launched in the same... Oh, I thought, I thought Xbox... Yeah. Okay. No, but but again, I mean, it was just promoted a lot with Xbox yeah. or something, yeah, but... But again, uh, it was well, a big that, enough... But again, it was a big enough success, and it showed enough promise that, like I said, it was yeah. enough to merit a sequel that Nintendo right. was excited about. Well, that's like yeah. Psychonauts. That's like Psychonauts too. Like they, no one wanted it. I mean, they had to self, they had to, you know, kickstart it, or I think <laughs> dig it or something. But yeah, yeah, because like yeah, I mean, the first one sold okay and has good critical reviews, but yeah, just no one else wanted it. I mean, hell, Microsoft. Kick, you know, killed the try to kill the first one. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it. It 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 can be a it can be a big deal. I don't think it's something that can necessarily be depended on anymore. Just because exclusivity is going to be so much harder to come by now that times are changing, but I think you're going to see more and more. You may see develop, may see publishers trying to really pounce on, really pounce on that so they can have one of those rare things where it's like a Spider-Man or a God of War or The Last of Us or a Halo or, um, Gears of War where it's, where it's just, this is ours. We, you know, we want this to be the reason why, why you buy this console. Yeah. Going back to your thing you were talking about. A little bit ago, uh, before we completely get off that topic, because you were talking about old, um, old games and how, you know, Sunday were making a fuss about how the PS1, the PS3 games were not going to be absolutely compatible. But it's interesting when we go back and talk about Console Wars, the documentary, right? You didn't really get that, right? Like Nintendo had to be convinced and made to make an adapter that would work with the, so from the Super Nintendo to the NES in order to make your NES games work because they wanted to make sure that, like, 
you know, because, uh, you know, they didn't want angry parents when they went and bought the Super Nintendo that their Nintendo games didn't work. And, like, uh, I think the Master System games worked already with Genesis, right? Yeah, they had a, a Power Race adapter to buy, like, this $40 add-on or whatever, but yeah. Yeah, so, like, you pretty much went into a console generation, and that was kind of the same until you got to the PS1, PS2, of... That system is not going to be able to play those other games. You kind of just got to deal with it. And then now we've gone into like the opposite where people get seem to be getting upset. And you have one company that they obviously had to make the PS4 games work because that's what you're going to be playing mostly for a while when these PS5 games come out because they won't really be true PS5 games. Um, for the most part, a lot of those, you know, and Xbox has decided we're just going to embrace all your games. I mean, almost all your games are going to pretty much work on this thing, even way back to the original Xbox. Like, interesting that we've gone like into this. We want our we want our old games. We want them. We 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 don't want them to uh, just be like we accept that we're going to be playing our old games, not having all these brand new PS5 and Series X games to play. Uh, going into to new generation, you know that's kind of funny to think about. X composed of those the old consoles where you were like, "Oh, Genesis has this Genesis game, and it's just a Genesis game, and the Super Nintendo oh. Super Nintendo game." You know, um, but I think what's interesting as well is just the the you talked about subscription services, but I feel like Sony has come out and they don't want anything to do with a subscription service. Uh, if I mean, you listen to Jim Ryan talk, he doesn't, you know. Well, they don't see the value, which is, I mean, kind of valid for like the, you know, which is going to make more is them selling Sony or just being on its own service. Yeah. No, definitely. It's uh, interesting you know that you say that. It's interesting you say that, Sean, because there's only one company that's really going towards that. So do you feel like Microsoft's right then that eventually Game Pass will be winning out? You know what? I really, I really do. And I, and I say that with no small measure of disappointment because when I got the PlayStation 4, that was the first time I had ever had a subscription service. And I got the PS Plus because, well, for one thing, my good friend, my good friend Cole Marantet, um, when he, when I got my PS4, he gifted a year of PS Plus to me, um, like, like right off the bat. In, in no small part so that he and I could play multiplayer stuff together. Um, but the value I also found in it is that, number one, as we all know, games are fucking expensive. It's right. one of the big advantages, I think, of being a PC play, PC gamer is Steam seasonal sales. Um, the closest equivalent that I have is that I know that like clockwork every single year for about two months in December and January, um, play a uh, Sony goes absolutely ape shit with their deals. Oh, and now even in Mar- November. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah like, and, no, now it's like every other month. Oh yeah. yeah. And just, and just absolutely. Well, and also like clockwork prices. now too, a lot of the big games, unless you're talking about Nintendo. Or some publishers, and most of them, if you wait four to six months, those games come down to like half price. Oh, yeah, huge price drops. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, now, okay, so take all that into consideration. 
And then also consider that for the 10 bucks a month that I pay for PS Plus, I get usually an additional hefty discount slashed off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the exclusive PS Plus sales that we get. There's, for the various free-to-play games that I have, there's the freebies that I that I get just for being a PS Plus member, which, yeah, not much monetary value, but still nice to have. Um, and then on top of all that, I get two free games a month that are just mine, free-to-play for as long as I'm a paid PS Plus member. Um, now, yes, I will... I was going to say, the problem with your whole argument is you still have to pay to to play online. And I wouldn't be a PS Plus member if I didn't have to do that. See, but that's the thing, is I don't mind having to pay pay to play online considering how much value I'm getting. I mean, I I don't mind it. I don't mind, you know, but I don't consider it a value. I consider them kind of screwing me because it's, you know... It's always games that I don't care about that I'm just adding to my well, stupid, you know, library. It's like, I don't care about Battlegrounds. I already have it on Steam. There's well, like okay, a better version on there. Or, you know, I don't care about, you know, Battlefront 2. It's like, great. Well, so, that's, that, that's I mean, fair. That, that's fair, and I get where you're coming from. But to be from, fair, yes. there, are, there are a lot of people like, and I'm one of them, I don't have uh, the ability to go and buy every Sony exclusive that comes out. Yes, thank at you. the and time this... that it comes out, and a sure. lot of times those big Sony exclusives wind up coming to PS Plus, and then as long as I keep subscribing, I get no, that game. The, the big see, Sony exclusives exact... never come to PS Plus. That's well, the see, thing. Uh, well, well but exact... they do. They do eventually. Is my mic on? <laughs> because yeah, this is the point. This is the point that I was trying to make before. Uh, you know. Mark kind of cut in is the fact that when you pile all of that up and when you pile up how expensive a hobby gaming can be is 10 bucks to, I don't look at it as 10 bucks to pay to play online. I look at it as 10 bucks a month that I'm paying. That also makes it a fuck ton cheaper for me to keep my library thoroughly top, thoroughly topped up. And yes, some months I look at the exclusives or the the two freebies that I that I get, and I go, holy shit, you threw me a bone with that with that one. Thank you. And some months I look at it, and you know, it's either okay, that's an indie that looks intriguing, and one that I either already own, either already own, or you know, I it's not I'd your real house it. at all. <laughs> yeah, I already I already own it, or I'm not, or I'm not interested, but. Still, even in those months when the freebies aren't that great, I still have to kind of weigh that against look at all the great shit that I've already gotten that I wouldn't have gotten without the without this ten bucks a month. This is I really see, but, not a half bad deal. But what PS Plus does is not to me. It's not the same as what your what Game Pass is. No. Oh no. And, it's absolutely like, not. Oh. Like so. That's that was my point. Is that. As Sony is saying that they have, they want nothing to do with that. Nintendo obviously wants nothing to do with that because they're even slow with putting their old games oh, on their required. service that they want you to pay twenty dollars for. And, no effort. Yeah, and like I, Nintendo boggles my mind with how resistant they are to people who want to absolutely stuff their money into a pneumatic cannon and fire it at Seattle at escape velocity. They that that just, surprises me too because it's just like. 
you're obviously probably not going to make any more console minis. The Super Nintendo and Nintendo are, are it. And like, yeah. I mean, they could come out with a 64 mini, but I just really doubt it. You and have- like, so like, you have a, a, now you're making people pay $20, which $20 a year is, is That's not right. bad at all. But like, now you're making you pay, tw- making people pay $20 a year to do online gaming, which you didn't do before. And part of that was your old games that you're going to be putting on there. And now it continuously gets less and less that you put on there. And instead of putting on the games that like, it's not like you have a virtual console that you're trying to get people to buy the games. You're giving people games that like no one cares about with maybe one every six months that they do. And it's just weird. You, you have this you have a fan base that is openly telling you we want to give you money we will happily give you money for these games if you will just make them available straight up and then the piracy happens because Nintendo doesn't want to accept the money all you yeah. have to do you have the games right there you've demonstrated you have the capability to put them on the virtual on the virtual console you demonstrated then, with the Mario All-Stars that you have no problem just emulating your games yes, as well. Yes. Like, I mean, <laughs> and, and then, oh, God, that's a whole other kettle of fish right there, is this whole notion of you're doing the Disney Vault thing with yeah. Mario 3D All-Stars, which, what the smurfy blue fuck? Seriously. It worked, though, right? People, it sold out. But normally, yeah. games don't sell out like that anymore. I know, but you're but you're having to go that route. When on the other hand, you have these games you're not doing anything with, and again, you have the technology, and then you want to breathe fire and brimstone about modders and em- about modders and emulators who are only putting the games out there for free in the first place because you won't make them widely available, and we want to play them. Yeah, and hey, it's, it's not like people are asking like them for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sega. <sighs> oh, Sega. But, so, I guess my point is, do you feel like we are going to eventually see Game Pass be so successful that the other two companies do wind up having to do that? No. Or, because you're saying this is going to be... I My point, I'm just getting at, at, at Sean here because he's saying that it is going to come down to your subscription services. I'm saying and, that I'm saying that if that if anything is going to eventually maybe give Microsoft an edge, it's going to be this. It's going to be the value of the value of the subscription service. Yeah. And then I think what you could see happen as as there end up being fewer and fewer plate fewer opportunities for either one to kind of gather a unique edge. I think you're going to see people try to come up with ways to compete to compete with Microsoft for that. But Microsoft may already be far enough ahead at that point that there's just no catching up to them in that regard. Yeah, I mean you I think you very well could be right. I mean, let's see what happens with the the Amazon Luna thing uh because that obviously means- it seems <laughs> like Microsoft is trying to think many years ahead with their entire strategy on two levels. 
and then also still have their toes dipped in what's going on right now. With mm-hmm. you have your console, you can still buy your console if you want it. But there's also Game Pass on PC, and we we we're gonna put all of our games on PC that are part of our first party lineup. And then we also have the X Cloud thing, which competes mm-hmm. with Google Stadia and Amazon Luna and and whatever other streaming. I wouldn't be surprised if Apple comes out with their own streaming thing at some point. Like you know, because that might be the way of the future at some point where. I be. We have a large contingent of people that decide, you know what, I'm not buying a console. I'm just going to stream a game. I mean, as the internet keeps getting better and, and perhaps internet will proliferate at some point to be able to cover other areas of even just the United States that doesn't have good internet right now to where this could be viable. But yeah, I mean, this, it may be beyond our lifetimes as well or when we're at the age where <laughs> all we're doing is sitting at home. Um, so. Where this happens, but you know, in our kids' lifetimes, so they get to see it, is that's what gaming is. I don't know, but maybe Microsoft has their butts covered for that. It's charming to think that we are going to be the first generation of elderly, lifelong gamers. Right? Like, we'll be 70 and still playing the newest game that came out. Oh, you know it. (laughs) Still talking about whatever. PlayStation 8 and, uh, you know, Xbox, I mean, Microsoft's still in it by that point. It's still making look, I'm on my, look, I'm on my deathbed. Can I have Mother 3, please? <laughs> Mark, what do you think is going to be, like, the, I guess, the, 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 the war, continuing war, I guess, going into this generation? It'll still be all the fanboy nonsense, but which is more powerful, which has the better games. Hmm. And it's yeah. all a matter of what games you care about. I mean, I'm getting the PS5 launch because I care about those games more than the Xbox lineup personally, or you know, their franchises. Yeah, <laughs> even I, if a I, lot of those are coming coming to the Xbox at this point, but still, Sony still has more more franchise more exclusives that I care about, like Spider-Man yep. versus Halo. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the big thing, right? Is that you mentioned that exclusives are getting smaller and smaller, but Exclusives are still important. Yeah, I don't think that. Right. I don't think that's the case. I mean, if anything, they're getting bigger because, like, you know, if they look at like past console launches. I mean, most of those have sucked ass. <laughs> well, no, I, what and he took, what he means and, is that like we're seeing way more people decide that we're going third party. Sure, than, but I mean, so, I mean, both consoles still have like you know their exclusives, but you know now it's just paired. You know, I don't care about blinks the time sweeper or you know stuff like that. Right, we're being a bit more uh, picky and choosy with the exclusives. And, you know, now we're signing up time exclusives and all that other stuff, mm-hmm. right? That's um, also important. Yeah, hell, Cuphead isn't an, ex- isn't an exclusive anymore. I think that was... There was apparently deals always to bring Cuphead and... Was it? Well, because Microsoft doesn't own those those studios. Like, they were independent... Microsoft just mm. partnered with them, and so there was always deals for those games to go to other consoles. Mm. Now, will Ori ever show up on a PlayStation? I don't know. No. <laughs> but, like, it's showing up on the Switch. I think there was always a uh, a deal in place for that. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I, I just, it's, like, I really do think what 
what you're saying, Sean, is what we're we really have to keep a keep a close eye on is Microsoft's strategy is either going to to become this thing that maybe by the next generation everybody's going to be jumping on, or it's just going to be a way for them to gain money and have a thing to cover their butts if some of these other studios that they bought don't come out with, you know, killer games. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, um, I'm, not about the, I'm not talking about the Bethesda ones. I'm talking about... I, know, I'm sure the, the guy... I'm sure Compulsion Games and made We Happy Few, they're working on something great. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... <laughs> poor We Happy Few, man. They uh, Compulsion Games just uh, didn't help themselves with that at all. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I'm just really, like, fascinated by what this, this could become as far as gaming of, but that's now gonna get put, their games put into Game Pass, so now you're going to choose, do you pay $15 or do you pay $70 to have your game on the console of your choice, and does that make you switch over, or at least own both consoles? I think that's the thing too, right? Like, I think the thing that we're seeing, uh, we're going to see a lot more of is perhaps it's not necessarily a war of choosing one or the other. I think it's more of a, now you're going to own both. I could see that. I could see that. Especially with the series us around and being cheaper. And I'm pretty sure if X cloud does well, they might come out with an even cheaper skew. That's just X cloud related. So Yeah. What we'll have to see is, you know, we're almost like a month away, like about five weeks away from these consoles launching. Uh, it's amazing to think about that, <laughs> um, <laughs> that we're we're at that point again, especially with everything that's happened in 2020. See, um, and but, yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna express what's probably gonna be a bold, easy to disagree with opinion, but it's how I feel regardless. Given the way 2020 has proceeded all along. Um, one of my, one of my, I don't want, which YouTuber was it? There was one I was listening to that called, uh, 2020 the year of the free pass. And it's because so much has gone so far sideways that anything that really didn't quite go to plan or produce some underwhelming results, this is one time it would really be fair to slap an asterisk on a lot of things. Because there were a lot of extenuating circumstances that came into play that people that people couldn't have helped. That being said, both in terms of how a lot of consumers' buying power is going to be limited, release schedules have been thrown and everything, in all honesty, I wouldn't have really thrown much of a fuss if, maybe not in terms of collusion, but just independently, if... Microsoft and Sony had both reached the conclusion, you know, we could just put launching these new consoles off for at least a little for at least a little while longer. I mean, or Sony might, but I mean, I don't think Microsoft ever will because they view it as they need to get their shit out first. Yeah, which which I get, but again, Sony is the one that I've long viewed as in many cases being a little more flexible and a little more understanding of their consumer base. Oh yeah. I mean, hell look at the fact that 
they did something that's unthinkable for a lot of huge gaming companies to do, and that's to openly, no excuses whatsoever, admit we fucked up our pre-orders. Um, to just publicly just put that right out there. That's something Microsoft damn sure wouldn't do. But it's it's something and again, I know it's not going to happen, especially especially now. You know, we're committed, but I think it's something that would that would have been maybe an idea worth looking at. Because now if sales maybe aren't what they could have been, or if they're a little slow out of the gate, they're then going to have to and everybody is going to is going to have to consider they released it coming off the first year of the pandemic when a lot of household in, household incomes absolutely got nuked from orbit and it murdered a lot of buying power. Well, have fun playing Halo on launch day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's already caused a lot. I mean, like you think about it, all these controversies that are now have been happening, right? Like, uh, now my, they just announced what Microsoft, or Sony had to come out and say that Spider-Man PS4 saves now work on PS5 because they were very cool. last week <laughs> until everybody got all raged about it. Um, <laughs> because Microsoft is kind of, uh, nuking people's idea of what gaming is right now, right? With all these, like, upgrade things for free and, Backwards compatibility works very well and all this other stuff. So as weird as it is to be talking about Microsoft in that way, it's cool when, like we saw with Sega, somebody comes and makes the sitting company that's on the top have to change a little bit of what they do. You know um, what? Yeah. That that doesn't that doesn't surprise me that that would be where Microsoft would gain some ground though, because my perception has always been that Sony has always made the more dependable, mechanically anyway, hardware. Right. Um, you know, less prone. Well, yeah. Less prone Helps less prone a lot when a lot the 360 has the running of death. Well, 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 yeah, exactly. And, and to some extent, I've always kind of possibly kind of naively and reductively just kind of looked at it as, well, for years, Sony made things like electronics, stereos, TV, stereos, TVs, and the like, um, uh, portable music players, stuff like that. Whereas what is Microsoft best known for? Software, networking, digital, infra- digital infrastructure. So it stands to reason that Microsoft would have the better networking, the better online experience, the better software, the better implementation of, um, yeah, of, cl- of cloud technology, it just in in my in my little reductive brain, that just kind of makes sense to me. So yeah, I mean, Sony Sony is going to have an ar- have an arms race on their hands. Yeah, it's yeah certainly going to be something to watch for this generation of how things change. What becomes the next? You know, battle royale was the the big thing this generation. What gaming mm. genre is going to be the next? big thing when we talk about uh you know the service game was also a thing uh, yeah what true. will be the next iteration or the next thing that we we go into with this generation 
Um, that's a that's a great question, and I don't have a ready made prediction for that. Connect three point oh. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. The only games that we know will not work yeah. backwards compatible are Connect. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, you talk about backwards compatible, but like the X, like it's not full backwards compatibility with the older consoles. Like, right. It's, I'm making kind of a really feel, funny part. Yeah. yeah well, I know, right I know now that. they're they're trying to. Are you talking about the stuff that's happening right now, or are you talking about? I'm talking about like the old, like yeah. the original Xbox and 360 stuff. Well, yeah, no, neither. it's not. Neither is. I mean, neither is going to be most of the a lot of the PS4 stuff either. It's just that's just how it works. Right. Uh, I mean, will they go back and try to make some of those other games? It's it's impossible, no. dude, because the licenses and everything else. I mean, not, they can't. Nothing will work like it did for the PS1 to PS2. Yeah. It's just, well, that, that still wasn't 100% perfect, but yeah. You know, it, it breaks my heart that, that, that the, the generations to come, their only experience with, uh, Silent Hill is probably going to be the, the super shitty remastered collection. Like, that's what they're going to be stuck with. And a pachinko machine. Yeah. 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 Like, like, like not the, not the originals, but no, the the absolute disastrous attempts to remap attempts to remaster them. That's that's crushing. Yeah. That was that one Wii game that was decent. That's about it. I have uh, no. I have you're no talking about shattered no. memories? No, I'm just talking about two, three, about two, three, and four. You know, the the ones regarded as two of the finest hours in the entire franchise, and then Silent Hill Four. Yep. I know those but, games are good. <laughs> but all right, so what do you think about what are going to be the next things to look forward to in gaming? What's going to be the thing you're watching out for when we get the next gen? And what do you think about those first consoles? You can let us know, w2network at gmail.com to answer all of us. Sean is at, at Comer Codex on Twitter. You can follow him for all his musings and or go watch him on stream. So what is your uh, Twitch? Uh, Twitch.tv Twitch. slash Comer Codex. And I'll be announcing on Twitter when that's going to be coming back. I just moved recently and I'm still struggling to kind of get my schedule wrapped up so that I can get back to it. But usually when I play, it's usually about oh four nights a week of multiplayer, uh, Overwatch, Apex, and Siege usually, and then at least one night a week when I play uh, story-based games. So, or no, that, oh, you know what, you know what, no, that's that's backwards. I switched that recently. No, it's four nights a week of story-based games, and then one night when I pick one of the aforementioned titles and just decide, nah, I'm just going to fuck around and go online for a while. Be a scrub lord for your amusement. <laughs> Fair enough. There you go. And of course, you can always uh, catch Mr. Comer along with everybody else, the the wonderful crew of the Radlison Broadcasting that do uh, great shows every week uh, to reviewing what's coming out, to talking about metal music and, and everything else in between. And of course, you can always catch us, uh, Mark and I, on Video Games to the Max every week. We'll have another show for you on the Friday night, Saturday-ish morning time. Um, we'll be talking about some of this stuff that's uh, come out this week, and I'm sure in the next coming days there'll be some other things to uh, talk about, along with those Series X impressions that are already out there, talking about load times and a quick resume of your games and everything else. And, um, you know, I hope you enjoyed us discussing 
new and old console wars and uh we'll see you guys later take care